So if you will, at this time, open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. And this morning, what we're going to do is continue our study on end times. We are looking at end times, and like I always say, it's an exciting study. It's, a, it's an enjoyable study because I think we like to look at end events that are dealing with the future. When you can know what's going to happen in the future, there's a little enticement there. And my purpose, though, isn't just to entice you today. My purpose is ultimately to get you to regularly read the book of Revelation. I want this to be a book that is something that you do spend devotional time in, something that you do study in. I want you to say that this is a book that is very understandable. I want you to to look at this book as something that you want to keep going into. I want this book to be like the anti-gravity books. Did you ever hear about the anti-gravity books? Yeah, you know why people love anti-gravity books? Because you can't put them down. Ta-da-da. Okay. I don't know where. Okay. Anyway. All right. Bum. Okay. Look, the book of Revelation in our culture today is often presented as unknowable. You catch that? Unknowable. I can't tell you how many pastors luncheons, breakfasts, people from other churches I've talked to, and they relate to the book of Revelation, and they say that you can't know it. I went to a blog this week. It was not got questions, but it was like probing for answers, a very popular Christian site. And the author said that basically when you look at the book of Revelation, there's all these like, like 50 different views are out there, maybe more, but they all boil down to four different views. And at the end, he just said this, and I know you can't see this. If you need to send, to you, I'll send it to you. But I wanted to read you. This is at the end of a long article on the approach to the book of Revelation. And he says this. Despite our various views, there are some common threads upon which Christians agree. All views believe that God is sovereign and in charge of that, all that occurs in history in its ultimate conclusion. Except for full preterism and some forms of idealism, all believe in the second coming of Christ. Now, that was that line, except for full preterism. What that basically, <laughs> I got to stop right there, is that basically this man has said that when you look at all the views, the different views on Revelation, they all boil down to four. And it's okay, basically, I, you know, if you, one, one of those four, but when he comes to this, he says, except for full preterism and idealism, they believe in the return of Jesus Christ. Well, that's two out of the four. Two out of the, so the majority of Christians today do not believe that Jesus Christ is even physically returning. And then he goes on to say, all believe there will be a future judgment. All agree upon the importance of the study of prophecy and its edification for the body of Christ. It's my hope that the debate would continue in a cordial, respectful manner, which will challenge every believer to accurately study and interpret the word. We all await the return of our Lord. But wait a second, that's contrary to what you just said, because... Almost half the people don't await the return of Jesus Christ. And then he ends it with, together with the saints, we say, amen, come Lord Jesus, which we just read prior to our study. And um, look, if you understand what, it just, what he just said, it, it basically is going on. It really doesn't matter what you literally think of this book. We all just can all agree upon these various concepts. But that is absolutely ridiculous. Do you know why? Because when you look at all these other concepts, they were already talked about in earlier books. 
Like, think about eternity, because we all believe that there's an eternity. Well, did not Jesus teach us in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that you know, whoever believes in him would have eternal life, right? And Jesus talks much about eternity in the book of, Revel- in the book of Gospel of John. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, talks about his return, that he's coming again. And then you have it in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, where the angels say, don't keep looking up in heaven, he's coming back just the same way. My point is, all of this information that he talks about, where we all agree upon all these other things that we can just get out of the book of Revelation, they're in other books. Maybe you should make this really clear. Why in the world would you ever need the book of Revelation? If this book is so unknowable and all we can do is agree on things that are in other places, why in the world would you ever have it? And I want you to understand that that is absolute hooey. This is a wrong attitude. This common view that the majority of Christians today have is absolutely incorrect. Today, I want you to, if you don't um, have your sermon notes pulled out, pull them out already. What I want you to understand is that we are able to understand God's judgments. We are under, able to understand the book of Revelation. And I want you to enjoy reading this book. I want it to be one you can't put down. I want it to be like the anti-gravity book. I want it to be something that you can grasp. And I want you to see it today as we're going to work through three principles regarding the judgments in the book of Revelation that hopefully will get you to say, look, I need to read this book more. Now, like I said, I did research on the book of Revelation this week, and there could be like 50-plus different ways you look at it, but basically all of those boil down to, to, to four different categories. And out of the four different categories, only one of them de- deals with future events. Can you imagine that? Most of, the, most of people who hold to be Christians today believe that the book of Revelation is either symbolism or already occurred. Okay, and, and, I, and I agree with the last line where he talks about, I don't want to be hostile, I don't want to be mean towards people, but I totally disagree with people who say you can't understand this book. And when somebody says you can't understand the, the book of Revelation because it's, um, it's, it's, so, it's so confusing and it's all so symbolic that you just really can't understand and know what any of it means, to me it's no different than when someone tells me in evangelism, when I'm evangelizing someone, and perhaps some of you have encountered someone like this, where they say, hey, the Bible, I can't believe that book. It's filled with contradictions. And what I tell you to do, what I like to do is say, tell me one. Tell me one contradiction. Because I want to tell you guys right now, that is such an approach of misinformation out there that someone says the Bible is filled with contradictions because I can tell you that you should be able to resolve every apparent contradictions. I remember when I was in seminary, I went through a, uh, I had a class and we were dealing with it in hermeneutics, and one of the things we had to do was to, to resolve a, apparent contradictions. And, and I know that you can do that with every one. So like if one gospel says two men came into a room and the other gospel said one man came in the room, you can work to reconcile that together. Now, what am I trying to say with, with this application here is that with the book of Revelation, follow the same concept. Someone says you can't understand the book of Revelation because it is so filled with these symbolic meanings and these, 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 these judgments that I can't define. Say, well, which one? 
ask them. And if you struggle with it, come to me. And what we're going to do today is I'm going to show you some examples of how you can answer all of these, I believe, misdirections to try to get people so confused that they just throw up the book of Revelation. I've said before, and I'll say it again, just say it briefly here. The reason for all the different views are either because people are liars, they're unsaved, or ultimately because they, in their being unsaved, they're liars, or being poorly taught, they use different hermeneutics. But if you use the same hermeneutic that you read the Bible with, that, I mean, you read the newspaper with, in the sense that we call it the literal hermeneutic or the grammatical historical hermeneutic, then you will come with the simple idea that this is a book that you can understand and it deals with future events, okay? So we're going to get into this here, and like I promised last week, we're going to look at one of the scariest verses in all of the Bible. And I, I promise we'll get to that too in a bit. So as a background, the book of Revelation is traditionally believed to be written by the Apostle John. While he was exiled on the Mediterranean island of Patmos. Church history has it that the Romans tried to kill John and that he was miraculously kept from death. And when the Romans couldn't put him to death, the only thought to do was, okay, we're going to exile him. And while he's exiled, he writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and finally the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is thought to be written between the years 90 and 95 AD. And so if you're there in chapter 1, verse 1, let's just read. As John began this book, he said this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And what you want to do is, if you have your sermon notes, fill in the blank, is that you can understand, just emphasizing this word understanding today, this is for you, this is for me, that we can understand it, but I want you to make a decision today. Do you realize that you have to make a decision, I'm going to agree with this or I'm going to disagree? You can understand the book of Revelation, and as we're going to see it, you're going to read it normally, and you're going to understand it chronologically. Chronologically is a big word, but it just means in, in order. It just tells a story. So look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Verse 3 says, blessed is he who reads it. He doesn't say reads it and uncodes it, reads it and gets just symbolically lost in it, reads it and gets so confused that you have no clue as to what it is, but he, you're to read it, and look what it says, and who hear the words, basically in the sense of that you grasp them, that you comprehend them, and then all of a sudden you heed them. Mainly they impact you so that you grasp what they meant and it changes the way you act. That's what it means to heed. So as you look at this, I want you to realize all he's saying is, I expect you to read it normally. That's it. There's no great big, big surprise here. Just read it normally. And when you come 
to this verse. It's the, uh, I think there are seven blessings. We know how there are beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, blessed are those who are persecuted. Ironically, you know, you don't look at those and say, boy, I have no idea what Jesus is saying. You, you fully expect that someone's going to read those and they're going to impact their life, those blessings and the Beatitudes. Well, there are seven blessings in the book of Revelation. And let's look at the very last one. Go back to chapter 22. So this is the first one. And now you go over to chapter 22. And if I didn't make this clear, this is a topical study. If you're visiting with us today, we normally go word by word, verse by verse. But we're doing this study of end times and we're trying to get this topic down so that we have a good understanding as we go through what seems to be a worldwide chaos, not only with COVID, but with other things that are going on in the world. So with Revelation 22, verse 17, and he says this, as we believe this is the words of Jesus, verse 7 says, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed he, he, is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, what has he done? He's basically just gone through this entire book. He's begun at the beginning. He's put it at the end. And he's basically saying, listen, if you read this book, it profits you. It blesses you. Now, if this book was a book that had no meaning, it was filled with symbolism that could never even be defined, then how could it ever bless you? How could it ever be something that makes you impact your actions. You know, the other day I went off to work and I told my son, Josh, I need you to cut the grass. And if I came home and he didn't cut the grass, he didn't heed me. And he says, boy, I have no idea what you mean, Dad. I, I, you know, grass doesn't mean um, green stuff in the lawn to me anymore. It means something else. You'd say, come on, what kind of game are you playing? I needed you to cut the grass. Well, thankfully, when I came home, the grass was cut because, you know, when we heed somebody, we listen to them, and it impacts us, and, it, and we change accordingly, and change our actions accordingly. God fully expects this book to be read by believers and have it impact your life. Now, we're going to study that here in a second, uh, but, but we're for now, my first point is, and I didn't want to have this fill in blank. I wanted to just be so clear to you. Just read this book normally, and, and when you read it normally, I believe you can work through any type of imagery and, if I want to say, symbolism. Because this book does use things that are symbolic, but it doesn't mean that they're symbolic with no definition to them. Like I'll show you in a second. Now go back to Revelation chapter 1, just trying to go back and forth, trying to help you grasp. When I talk about the idea of understanding in a chronological manner, not only is John writing to you so that you can understand this in a normal way, but he's understanding so that it just you can see how it unflows, uh, un, un, uh, out, the, the flow goes. And so when you come to chapter 1, John is seeing an incredible image. He's seen angels, and he's seen, I believe, the, the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so verse 17, he says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I believe he's just seen Jesus, all right? And we're not going to go into the study, but I encourage you to go back and, and, and look and study. It has to be Jesus, all right? And he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. I don't think anyone else could say that but Jesus. Verse 19. This is the verse that I need you to star. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. That verse is considered the outline verse for the book of Revelation. And basically, the outline of Revelation is it flows into three parts. That which John has seen, chapter 1. Things that are, chapters 2 and 3. Those are the seven churches of Revelation that receive the letter and provide evaluations for churches for all time. But those were the, the conditions of the churches at that time. So chapters 2 and 3, the things that are. And then the things that will be, chapters 4 to 22. And, and when you recognize this, all I'm trying to get you to understand is that when you look at this book, even in the outline, it's showing a little bit of a, a time concept, all right? The idea that there is time involved. And so when you understand this book, I believe you can begin to understand how it's going to play out in a chronological way. This is what you've seen the past. This is what things are. And this is what's going to happen. And we're going to go into this book. And sometimes what's going to happen, though, just like any story, is that John is going to stop and he's going to pause and he's going to give some backstory. And it's no different than when you watch a modern day movie or read a modern day book. Many of you, I was thinking, which movie can I use? Or, you know, a lot of people like the movie Christians, like the movie, the movie Princess Bride. You read that movie, you watch that movie, and it's a fun movie, and it's told in a sequence of events as things happen. But every once in a while, in this very endearing story about how a prince is trying to save his, his princess, they stop and they tell the backstory on what happened to the prince. They tell the backstory on what happened to the princess, or that happened to the prince's king, uh, father, excuse me, <coughs> what happened to the father. And so in that, you know, all of a sudden you don't say, oh my goodness, I can't tell what's happening in this, in this story just because they stop and they give you a backstory or they, or they stop and they give you a little reflection. The, God, the book of Revelation will do just that. And I think it's really evident when, he, when the author, John, does take a stop. And so let's get into this here and, and, and let's understand that the book of Revelation is something that you can understand chronologically, and you can understand it normally. And so my hope is that you will now want to read it and be blessed by it and have it impact your life. So here we go. This is what you need to know. You can know the judgments as literal events in the future. Just These are things that are really going to happen. Because, again, like I said... If you know anybody that's come from the Catholic persuasion or similar, um, have a similar view, they believe these events have already happened in the past and, and others that believe that this is something that are all just symbolic and they have no tie-in to reality. And I don't believe that at all. We're going to come to chapter 6 here in a second and it's going to start the three types of judgments. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. If you ever get lost in the book of Revelation, you just have to recognize the ST 
be, all right? And I always make the allusion to the oil when I was a kid. We had STP. Um, some of you remember that oil. So just substitute the, the B for the P, STP. So you can always remember, this is the order of the judgments. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. But let's just look and, and, and go to chapter 4, verse 1 here, real quick. In chapter 4, verse 1, John has just finished up with the things that are, chapters 2 and 3. And then we see that the story of Revelation, as it's being untold, is told like in a chronological way. Because you see in verse 1, the very first thing he says is, after these things. Well, that seems like a a time sequence, after these things. And then you see verse 1 says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. and, And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So after the things that are, John is sequentially taken into heaven, and now it's very important that you recognize John is seeing things from heaven's perspective. So when we see the seal judgments or the trumpet judgments or the bull judgments, he's seeing them from heaven's perspective, but it doesn't mean we can't have an earthly understanding. So as you go through chapters 4 and chapter 5, you have a vision in heaven, and it's an incredible vision, and when all of a sudden there, there's this question, who can open up the seal? We see that the Lamb of God, if you go to chapter 6, verse 1, is the one that is going to be able to break the seal. Now, with these, this is, the seal judgments are in chapter 6. The trumpet judgments start in chapter 8. The, the bold judgments are in chapter 16. Okay? And, and, I just find, if, I, if I've got these benchmarks, I know where things are in the book of Revelation. And you say, why, why seal judgments, why trumpet judgments, why bold judgments? We're never given an explanation explicitly other than we can infer from this that the document that was in chapter 5 that nobody could open is a scroll that, that is a very important piece of, 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 of writing. And either it's a title deed to the earth or it is the official pronouncement of judgments that nobody could, could, could give to bring out righteousness on earth. I'm not sure if, if, if it's just maybe a function of both. Sort of like the idea that now these judgments can come out and the owner of the document, which I believe is Jesus, is taking back possession of the earth, which we hold that you know, God has given to Satan in the sense that Satan is the ruler of this world, we learned from the, the epistle, I believe it's the epistle of Ephesians. And so what we have is that he's taking back the title of the earth. Now, seal judgments, if you have this document where the, like a wax seal that a document would be secured in, so that it was like an official document. You know, you get the wax, you melt it, the king would put a signet ring in it, so it would be evidence that this is now officially his document, and, and that this is a document that has authority. So the seals would be now opening up to judgment. And then the trumpet judgments, the best I can tell you is that when you blow a trumpet, things are getting louder, right? And things are getting more intense. And that's exactly what happens as you progress through the book of Revelation. Why bold judgments? Well, you know, drinking the cup of wrath or drinking down his, his, his anger... 
The idea of, of somebody taking a bowl and pouring out hot liquid would show far more intensity than the blowing of a trumpet. And to me, that's the idea. That the idea is like when I used to watch um, old time movies and you would have somebody try to storm a castle and the people on top would have these bowls filled with hot liquid and they would pour it over. And so those people trying to climb up the castle wall would just be drenched in and be immediately killed, burned horrifically. Nobody would ever want to follow suit to climb up and go try up to go up the castle wall. To me, when we come to the bold judgments, they are the ultimate intense wrath. Okay? So that, that is something I can grasp, I can understand. These are increasing in intensity and their sequence of events. So you go to chapter 6, verse 1, and let's just look at the sealed judgments. The sealed judgments are going to start in chapter 6. We're going to have an interlude in chapter 7. And then out of the final sealed judgments, there are seven sealed judgments. Why seven? We believe God just uses a number that, that often reflects perfection. And, and out of the seventh seal comes the, the trumpet judgments. So we start in chapter 6, verse 1. And what I'm trying to just get you to understand is that these are all events, even though they have some symbolism, some, some, some things that are happening up in heaven that maybe seem a little weird, but you can still definitively say what is happening on earth. So chapter 6, verse 1, the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice of thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out in conquering and to conquer. Now, this begins the four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you study the book of Zechariah, you're, you're not surprised that God has used imagery of horses controlling and running over the earth in the Old Testament. So this is just normal, and it's a, it's a view of heaven. Now, is there a literal horse in heaven? I that, you can say, I don't know how he's going to play it out. John has seen an image of a horse in heaven, and it's, I believe, representative of an angel. This isn't on earth. Remember, he's up in heaven. This isn't on earth. And, and so I may not know exactly how this white horse looks, what, example, what exact type of horse it is, but I believe John has seen this image, and I believe it's, it, is, it is trying to communicate to me what is happening on earth is that somebody is able to come with a bow, not with an arrow, not with a weapon to bring, about to bring about victory, but he's conquering without a war at this point. And he comes out and he conquers the world. All right, that's it, just simple. And then you go to the second seal, chapter 3, but when he broke the second seal, I heard a second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse, went out, and him who sat on it, and it was granted to him to take peace from the earth. Well, that's understandable, that peace is taken from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So we go from, all right, there's this horse in heaven that's red, and I'm not sure I can tell you the significance of the color. I try to go back to the Old Testament passage in Zechariah, other than the fact of you try to say red is often an alarming color. It's, it might show intensity. It might show the aspect of blood. And the thought is maybe when we're at heaven, we can ask God, why specifically did you choose red? He'll, he can tell us. But we can all understand the color of red means red. And, and the fact of a horse means a horse. So John has seen this imagery to the best that God is telling us, no, is that this angelic force is being let go. 
And we know an angelic force is being let go. Now, how will it play out? How will he accomplish it? How will he influence people on earth? Those things are unknown to me. But what I do know explicitly happens on earth is that war takes place and people are killed. And so you jump to the third one, and it deals with famine. And I'm not going to go into detail for time's sake, but it just deals with famine. But when you come to the fourth seal in verse 7, the lamb breaks the fourth seal. I heard the voice of a fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades who followed with him. Authority was given them to, to over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So, again, I may not know exactly how the ashen horse is going to accomplish what he's going to do, but the number one-fourth means one-fourth to me. I don't have to look at this and throw my arms up and say, gee, I have no concept as to what this word means. It, it, it's a tangible number. Someone says, wait a second, one-fourth of the people. Today, if you have 7 billion people on the earth, that's 1.75 billion people. You can't tell me that God's going to wipe out 1.75 billion people. Yeah, I can. And I can also tell you that that makes a lot of sense that this is still a future event because I don't know any event in human history, World War I, World War II, bubonic plague, that wiped out one-fourth of the world's population. One-fourth. Now, there's been plagues and deaths that have taken huge numbers, but nothing to this extent. Nothing to this extent. Again, bubonic plague... World War II, World War I, they killed a lot of people. But you're not going to have one-fourth of the world's population all go in one setting like this. And so, literal event. And when you go through this, how can you say, this is something I don't know? And I challenge you, after the service, you come to me and say, I have no clue. There's no way you can take any of this literal, Pastor. I'd like to say, how in the world can you make that jump? How could anybody make that jump that none of this could be understood in a literal way? People are going to die. And if you're somebody in this room right now and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and the rapture occurred, there's a good chance if you go into the tribulation, you'll be one of these people who die. If not in this judgment, but in the coming trumpet judgment. Okay, whoops, let me go back. Okay, because every one of these judgments are going to increase in the number of people that are killed. It's going to be very few people, Jesus tells us, that make it through. When you come to chapter 7, what you have is basically an interlude. And you look at verse 1, it says, after these things. Okay, again, chronologically, he's working through this. Chapter 7, verse 9, after these things. And I saw a great multitude. And I believe what John has seen is is the number of people who have been saved out of the tribulation. We said that there are a lot of people who get saved, and that's why we've been promoting for many of you, and I left, oh, I, no, I do have mine here, to leave behind a great track for people who don't make it into the rapture. And so we'll have more, we have more of these up front. But listen, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you can get saved. It's just going to be really, really hard if you go through the tribulation. So... Chapter seven, verse and chapter seven and verse um, chapter seven deals with a lot of people who get saved. When you come to chapter eight, it begins the trumpet judgments, and the trumpets come out of the seals. And let me just hit the first one in chapter eight, verse seven. The first trumpet sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. 
Now, this is up in heaven. God tells us that we can understand there's hail, there is fire, and mixed with blood, to me, seems like it's real blood, but it's the imagery that is being shown about the incredible amount of death that's going to occur because of this judgment. Now, they were thrown to the earth, verse 7 says, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. How can you not say that is a noble number? One third, one third. And he's not talking about something that is so um, out there that you have no clue what it is. Trees, grass, I can grasp that. And how does it get all calculated? Well, God's the one who knows. He can calculate it. He can say percentage-wise, hey, 33.3% is what is going to happen. And I think if you go through all of these judgments, every one of these are answerable the same way. Now, I know as you continue on through chapter 8 and chapter 9, especially when you get to chapter 9 with the fifth trumpet, you've got these wild beings, these locusts. What are they going to look like? Are, you know, these are totally unknowable. Well, to me, they're going to be locusts, and they're going to have these weird looks, but when we're, we're, when we're going to see them, we might be able to say, oh, my goodness, that's exactly the way God said they were going to look, and that's exactly how they look. And, and so when you look at this, you don't throw your arms up and say, well, definitely, I just, I'm just going to dismiss the book of Revelation. I'm just going to dismiss the book of Revelation because it's not something that could be knowable. No. Now, listen. You go through the judgments in chapters 8 and 9 of the trumpets. I believe all of them are literal. When you come to verse, um, what was it, verse uh, um, 15, chapter 9, verse 15, and the four angels who had prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now, we're progressing, right? 25% of the world is taken here. Now, one-third. Now, I don't know if it's one-third of who are left or one-third of what we started. So if it's like one-third of what we started, it was like 2.2 billion. But if it's less, but if we're down to 4.7, then it's a million, billion people. We're down to like 1.5 billion people. God doesn't tell me and what my first number is that I'm going to be multiplying in this. All I can tell you is that's a real known number. One-third, one-third. Now, as we roll through this, the trumpet judgments are going to roll into the bull judgments. But before we get to the final trumpet and how it's going to play out, we get the longest interlude in this book, chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. It's in chapter 13 that we learn about the Antichrist. But to me, the Antichrist isn't the scariest passage in the Bible. You know what the scariest passage, one of the scariest passages in all the Bible is? Even worse than this evil Antichrist? It's chapter 10. Because in chapter 10, we, John stops and he says, I saw this angel. Look at verse 1. I saw an angel, strong angel, coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was like the sun, and his feet like the pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open, and he placed his right foot on the sea and his left hand on the land. So I believe this is very understandable. Sea, land, he's touching everywhere. There's no place on earth that this isn't going to impact. Okay? Verse 3, And he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunders had spoken, I was about to write. 
So in case you missed it, John gets this next prophecy, seven peals of thunder. People always talk about seal judgments, trumpet judgments, but there are seven peals of thunder, and John sees them, and he wants to write them down, and what happens is, is that God says, no, don't write them down. Don't write them down. And to me, this is one of the scariest things around, because when it's all said and done, John wants to write them down. What's going to happen in Revelation? John has to take it, verse 9, take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter. But basically, like, seal it up. And I think what God is hinting to us is that there are things going to happen in the book of Revelation, in the timeline of the tribulation that are absolutely horrific, and they're so horrific they make John sick. But for whatever reason, God is not going to reveal them to us. Maybe because it will t give too much information to the Antichrist. Maybe it, it is so horrific a judgment, it, it, it's over the top and people can't take it. But to me, why is this so scary? Well, because if I watch a scary movie, when I watch a scary movie, if all of a sudden I know where the monster is, I'm not scared. But when you watch a scary movie and all of a sudden some chicky girl goes down in the basement when she has to go, you know, find something in the basement, and you, you care for this girl, you, you know, like, don't go into the basement, don't go into the basement, and she's in the basement, and, and, and there could be something around the corner, there could be something behind the, the, the other basement door, that's when the intensity picks up, doesn't it? And, and then she opens a door, and then there's nothing there, or she opens a door, and that monster comes out, and you say, oh, you know, Ugh. and that's when you scream, because it builds up the intensity. Chapter 10 scares me because I have no clue. None of us have any clue what God is planning for the unbeliever. And, and that's scary because it makes John sick. Well, when you jump over to chapter 16, chapter 16 takes you now out of the, the, the trumpet judgments and into the bowl judgments. And when you come to the bowl judgments, it boils all the way down to the battle of Armageddon, chapter 13. And I saw it coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, I may not know exactly what those spirits are going to look like on earth, but God, from a heaven perspective, frogs, contrary to the prince, you know, the, the princess kissing the frog and turning into a, a, a prince, frogs are considered ugly. And so... God is just trying to say, these demonic forces are really ugly. And for the spirit of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one, here's another blessing, is the one who stays awake and keeps us closed so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gather together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And I think back to the two, last two years, I stood on a mountain overlooking this plain this valley of Armageddon, which has been called by military people the greatest valley in the world for a worldwide battle. And think about it. Even today, modern people will say this is an incredible location for a worldwide battle. And it's a literal place. And so why in the world would you end up saying this thing is an unknowable book? And God wants you to read this. Why? Let's wrap this up. Here's what he wants. He wants you to respond today. Today, God wants you to respond in one of two ways. Number one, he wants you to fear it unto salvation. Turn to the last chapter. Last chapter. 
chapter 22, verse 7. As we're coming to the end of this book, um, excuse me, not 22, 7, 22, 17. Chapter 22, verse 17. I believe that this book was written to get people to come to salvation. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say come. The spirit is the Holy Spirit. The church is the bride. We've studied this recently. The bride, come. And the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost basically come. That's Isaiah 55 for those of you who know your Bibles. The idea that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. This is a book that you need to tell people, fear it, fear it. Now, back earlier, for sake of time, I'm not going to have you go back there, but when the angel is sent in the mid-heaven proclaiming the eternal gospel, the eternal gospel isn't God loves you. The eternal gospel, which it is, I mean, it includes that, but the emphasis on the eternal gospel is fear God. Fear is the idea, not just of, of having awe of God, but it is absolutely being terrified. And you need to tell people, they need to be terrified of God. Listen, God could have just said, when you die, you go to hell, that's it. Or you die, then, then you get judged, and not gone into the details. When you look back at the seal, trumpet, and bull judgments, do you ever think about why God put so much description in there? Why in the world would God do that? God is trying to let you know how much he hates sin. God loves the sinner and that he provided salvation, but he is also going to punish the sinner. And if somebody doesn't repent, you look at the fact, you say, wait a second, these seal judgments are horrific. These trumpet judgments are horrific. You're sending these demonic beings and they're going to sting people and they're going to hurt people and, and, and then you're going to pour out these bowls. Don't people have enough? I, God is letting us know in a way that if he would never have let mankind sin, and he said, you know, I get really angry at sin, we would have said, really? You were really angry? Well, listen, the book of Revelation, being written by the way it does, is trying to let people know God is so angry with sin. He is so angry with sin. So look at the seal judgments, See, look at the trumpet judgments, look at the bull judgments, and understand God isn't playing games, and he will send people to hell, and he's going to send so much judgment upon this earth. And we're going to pick up a study in the future, uh, next week, week after, just the idea of trying to understand how close we are. But you need to understand, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, that God is saying, you read this book so that it causes you to fear him. So that you come and understand, by faith alone and Christ alone is your only answer. And you need to turn from your sin and repent today. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture says. The Bible talks about the fact that God loved you and he's provided his son, Jesus Christ, to die. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath to come. And again, when I talk about the wrath to come, every one of the people who hold to other views... They know that if you hold to the fact that the, the, the wrath is literal, then you've got to have this all be a future event. Okay? It is a future event. And so I don't know where you are today, but I would tell you, fear it. And then now go to verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. This can go out to believer and unbeliever, but I just want to focus right now on the believer. 
Fear it unto under evangelism. You read this book, and, and if you're going to heed this book, what, what this book is going to do is it's going to impact you to say, you know what? I can't just sit on my hands with this, with this life. I know what's coming. I know that the end is coming, and it's getting closer. Obviously, each and every day, I need to be explicit with the gospel. The only way somebody escapes the judgments of Revelation is if they believe in Jesus Christ. You hope that they would believe today and get saved and then go through the rapture. But if not, I'm asking you, set up those rapture boxes. Set up whatever you can in people's minds so that you've given them the gospel so that they have an opportunity after you're gone. Because we know, we'll study it coming up, the Antichrist is going to lie. And, and God, as part of the judgment, incredibly, is going to make that lie believable. And so the urgency for you to look at people and you say, I've got to get the gospel out to them. You say, well, you don't know my family. You don't know how hard they are. You don't know my friends. They're so hard into the gospel. Listen, the reality of it is none of us were open candidates for the gospel. The reality of it is, is that God is the only one that can open up a heart. God is someone that you need to be appealing and preach, praying to, saying, God, please open the heart of my loved one. And I pray that some of us will see some of our loved ones saved before the end comes. But it is coming, and it's literal. And we need to fear it for them. If we love them, we need to fear it for them. So in conclusion, just three basic truths. You can understand the book of Revelation. You should know the judgments are literal. And you can respond today. And I would pray right now, you would look at it and you'd say, I am going to respond today. Make a decision today. Make a decision either to come to Jesus Christ in faith or make a decision to have this book impact you for greater service, greater holiness. Now, we can talk about that another time, but those are all part of heeding this book. You know, I've given sermons where I've warned people, you don't know how much time you have. And then within one week, someone that's actually sitting in this auditorium has died. Others have been in situations where somebody has died around them within hours of leaving the service. And I just want you to understand, you don't know how much time you have. We don't know how much time anybody has. Let's make the most of today and have this impact you today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can talk about the book of Revelation and we're a church that believes it's a literal event. I hope, God, that today, today, people will be blessed in ways that they can't imagine, that it'll multiply them in fruitful labor for you and multiply us in holiness, but also have us understand as we all perceive the day getting closer and closer for the return of Jesus Christ, that we need to pick up our efforts of evangelism. Help us to be the people who heed this book. Help us to be people who say, oh, I can read it, and it's, it's something that's impacted me. You wanted that. And perhaps, God, there's somebody here today that's never given their life to you. May they recognize that their sin deserves incredible judgment. Let them read the book of Revelation and carry the weight of God's incredible hatred for sin and sinners. And that God graciously is providing eternal life for anyone that would turn and give him control of their life. May someone today confess him as Lord. But if they don't, Lord, I pray that they, the, the seal and trumpet and bull judgments haunt them and it causes them to 
continually go back to the book of Revelation and to continually come to the end where the invitation from the Holy Spirit says, come, take of the water without cost, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and have eternal life and escape wrath. In Christ's name, amen.